0: Let's pray as we prepare to look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you draw close to us through your word, that you give us your fatherly instruction, that you reveal yourself to us. We ask you now that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking this morning at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Uh, It's a passage that takes place at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry and as he's gathering his initial followers. But before we get to our text, I want to take just a few moments to reflect on an unusual question. Here it is. Do we as Christians sometimes make the claims of Christ a little too easy to believe for ourselves? Do we as Christians sometimes make the claims of Christ a little too easy to believe for ourselves? In other words, do we sometimes believe too easily because we're believing wrongly? Now that's a weird question, and some of you probably aren't really sure what I'm talking about. And others of you are thinking about how we're supposed to have childlike faith. And so it's it should be easy. It shouldn't be difficult. And so before we go any further, let me take a few more minutes to try to better express what it is I'm asking, what I'm trying to get at uh, by telling you a little story. One of the high school guys in the church has recently organized a time every Wednesday where he and I and a small group of high school students, high school guys from our church, from Covenant High School, will get together and go out for lunch on Wednesdays. I have really enjoyed it. It's been a great way for me to get to know them a bit better. Last week we went out and we were debating in our group whether we should go out to get pho, which is a a Vietnamese noodle dish, or if we were going to go to an Italian deli in Fircrest. We ended up going to get pho, which was good for me because they showed me the right way to eat it. Apparently I've been doing it wrong all along. But first we went by the Italian deli and Sam Hound, one of the guys in the group, told me that the deli was owned by the mayor of Fircrest. And I replied with something like, oh, that's interesting. And that was about it. That was it was a fine response. It wasn't too hard for me to believe that it seemed plausible. And so that was what happened. But now imagine with me if we were going by the deli and Sam had said to me, you know, that deli is owned by the president of the United States. And I had said, oh, that's interesting. And then nothing else. How would Sam probably reply? He would probably say something like, no, Stephen, I don't think you've heard me right. I said this deli here is owned by the president of the United States. And if I still just sort of shrugged it off and said, yeah, okay, I I believe you, then he would want to start asking me more questions. Who wouldn't know if I understood what a big deal the president of the United States is, how powerful he is, and how amazing and odd it is that he owns an Italian deli in Furcrest? <laughs> because I'd be responding as if the president of the United States was about no more of a big deal than the mayor of Furcrest. Because the proper response to a claim that big is surprise and even a little trouble believing it. The proper response includes asking more questions and looking into it a bit myself and then being kind of amazed that I could go and hang out in the president's deli in Furcrest. Our text this morning confronts us with the fact that this is often how we respond to Christ. We believe too easily for the wrong reasons. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not criticizing childlike faith. Actually, it's much the opposite. Childlike faith is our goal because of its ability to trust in a big God and in big promises made by that God wholeheartedly. What I'm drawing our attention to is something different. I'm pointing at our tendency to get around the call to childlike faith by making God smaller and making his promises and his work in the world more modest and so more believable. And when we reduce Christ and reduce his promises and his work, it becomes easier for us to believe without requiring childlike faith of us. And so we embrace Christ, but we do it by reducing him. He becomes a supporting character in the story of our lives or the life of our family or the life of our nation. We reduce him to an important helper in our story, essential to the story, we would say, but not really functionally central. Whether we would say this or not, the way we think of our lives and the way that we live our lives reflects our deeper belief that our lives are mostly about us. It's about our story. Christ is important but he's reduced. We take the king of the universe and we reduce him to the mayor of Fircrest. So how do you think of your life? How do you think of your challenges? How do you think of your goals? How do you think of your family? Whose story is it anyway? If you're honest with yourself, who is the main character in the story that you tell yourself every day about your life? Our text this morning gets at that question. It speaks to our situation. It introduces us to Nathanael, a man who is a faithful Israelite, but who seems to be telling the wrong story. He seems to be telling a story that's too small. Our text takes place in the Gospel of John. Early in the ministry of Jesus, he's calling his disciples, and Nathanael is one who's brought by Philip to meet Jesus. Nathanael shows up here in John 1, and then he shows up again in John 21, but the name does not appear in the other Gospels. It's interesting to note, though, that some scholars believe the other Gospels do refer to this man under the name Bartholomew as one of the 12. In any case, we see him meet Jesus in our text this morning. And so with that in mind, let's now hear from our text from John chapter one, verses 43 to 51. And please do listen carefully. This is God's word for us this morning. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I have said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is God's word. So Philip goes to Nathanael and he tells him that they found the Messiah. And Nathanael is a bit incredulous at first. He's not convinced. And so Philip tells him to just come and see. And he comes and Jesus greets him and seems to know something about him. Nathaniel asks him how he knows him and Jesus reveals something he knows about Nathaniel that he had no earthly way of knowing. It's not totally clear what Jesus is communicating with the phrase when you were under the fig tree I saw you, whether it's some specific incident in Nathaniel's life or something just before Philip came to him. But either way, Nathanael seems to recognize that there is something prophetic, something miraculous in this knowledge. And he promptly declares that Jesus is the son of God and the king of Israel. Now, we need to stop here and ask what Nathanael means by those phrases, especially because Nathanael, when he called Jesus the son of God, most likely did not mean what we mean when we use the phrase son of God. We mean that Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And we should mean that. In fact, John's gospel, the passage before we get to ours that we're looking at this morning, begins by telling us that that is exactly what that phrase means when it's applied to Jesus. But for a first century Jew like Nathaniel, the phrase son of God was just another way of saying king of Israel, because that is how the concept is used in the Hebrew scriptures in our Old Testament. And so in Exodus 4.22, God says, excuse me, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. God similarly quoted in Hosea 11:1, saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. It is Israel who is God's son in these texts. And then that idea, that idea of sonship grows and develops and comes to be seen as embodied in a special way in the human king of Israel. So that in 2 Samuel 7:14, God describes David's son Solomon saying, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so the king of Israel is especially described as the son of God. Now, in the coming of Christ, that idea will undergo further development. It will come when applied to Jesus to mean a man who is himself divine, who is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. John tells us as much in the prologue of his gospel. But Nathaniel is not quite there yet. God has been gradually over time revealing the idea of who his son is, finding its ultimate fulfillment in the divine Jesus Christ. We know that. And John tells us that. But Nathaniel would not yet know that. And so he uses the phrase, as any first century Jew might, as a title for the Messiah, for the king of Israel. And so when Nathaniel looks at Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's effectively saying the same thing in two different ways. Like we might say to the president, you are the president of the United States. You are the commander in chief. Now, why is all of that explanation important? Because it helps us see what Nathaniel has missed. It helps us understand Jesus's response. Nathanael hears a prophetic word from Jesus and declares him to be the King of Israel, the Messiah. The first part of Jesus' reply is, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What is Jesus getting at with this? There's a range of ways to interpret Jesus' first response to Nathanael here. At best, he seems to be saying something like, It's good that you believe, but this is only the beginning. Or on the other range of the spectrum of possibilities, he may almost have a gentle rebuke here. And he writes, suggests that Jesus is likely a bit surprised and even amused by Nathaniel's response. He essentially responds, really? Do you believe I'm the Messiah simply because I said this prophetic word? You haven't seen anything yet. And then Jesus shifts the framework of who the Messiah is. He enlarges the scope, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The fact that Nathanael believed Jesus was the Messiah from this prophetic utterance and that Jesus replies by enlarging the scope of who the Messiah is seems to indicate what's going on here. Nathanael is a faithful Israelite and his response in faith is very good. It is better than most others of his day. But we seem to have an indication that it's partly due to a reduction in Nathanael's mind of who the Messiah is. For Nathanael, the Messiah is the king of Israel. For Jesus, the Messiah is the cosmic bridge between heaven and earth. For Nathaniel, though responding in faith, he's reduced the king of the universe to the king and deliverer of a small nation in Palestine. It's as if he's reduced the king of the cosmos to the mayor of Fircrest. And so how does Jesus respond? He responds by reframing Nathaniel's view. He responds by adjusting the scale of the storyline of who the Messiah is. He says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what does this part mean? Jesus is referring to a story about the patriarch Jacob back in Genesis 28. In it, we're following Jacob along, the father of the nation of Israel. And Jacob is fleeing from his brother after a long and dubious conflict with him over who will inherit the promise that God's made to his grand- their grandfather, Abraham and their father, Isaac. And Jacob receives the blessing and then he flees and things are not looking good for him. And in that moment, God gives him a vision. Here's what we read in Genesis 28, describing that vision. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring shall shall. I'm sorry. And in you, all you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now there's a lot that's going on in that story, but one big element is that God widens Jacob's view of what's happening in his life. God reminds Jacob of what he should already know. Jacob has been involved with and is fleeing from what he could be tempted to think of as a difficult situation, but at the end of the day, merely a domestic dispute over a form of inheritance. But God shakes him of that expectation. God reminds him that it is not only Jacob's family that is in view here, but it is about Jacob and his descendants being used to bless all the families of the earth. God reminds him that what is going on is not an earthly struggle between humans, but a cosmic movement where heaven is breaking in on earth. God reminds Jacob that he, that God, is not entering Jacob's story as a supporting character, but that Jacob is being caught up in God's story, a story of cosmic invasion and reconciliation. It is the story of a God who made all things, including making man and woman in his image, and how the things and the people he made were good, and how he loved them. It is the story of mankind's rebellion against God and their estrangement from him, And their slavery to sin. It is a story of God continuing to lovingly pursue humanity, to gather for himself a people, forgiving them of their sin and promising them reconciliation. And it is the story of God promising to one day make all things new and wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. Jacob could have thought of his life primarily in terms of his own personal struggle. He could have seen himself as the central figure, striving to establish a household and a blessed family line. Jacob could have been tempted to see God as a supporting character in his life story. But God overturns that with this vision. God shows, he reminds Jacob, that there is a much larger story going on here. He reminds Jacob that he, that God, is working to reconcile the world to himself and to make all things new and to reunite heaven and earth that have been torn asunder by man's rebellion. And that Jacob is a supporting character in that story, in God's story. Nathanael and really all first century Jews faced a similar temptation as Jacob. As Israel was under Roman authority and oppression was often felt, Nathanael and his countrymen could have been tempted to focus on the storyline of first century Israel. He could have been tempted to focus on Israel and to see the Messiah more and more as a supporting character in winning freedom for Israel. He could have been tempted to reduce the role of the Messiah to being Israel's social liberator and religious reformer, a prophet and leader for Israel. But Jesus overturns that vision. Jesus shows, he reminds Nathanael that there is a much larger story going on here. He reminds Nathanael that he, that the Messiah, is working to reconcile the world to himself and to make all things new and to reunite heaven and earth that have been torn apart by man's rebellion. And that Israel is a supporting character in that story, in the Messiah's story, in God's story. And we often need the same reminder ourselves. We, too, can be tempted to focus on the storyline of our own lives. We can be tempted to focus on ourselves and our families and see Jesus as a supporting character in our life stories and in our personal growth. And we, too, in this text are called to allow Jesus to overturn that vision. Jesus shows he reminds us that there is a much larger story going on. He reminds us that he is working to reconcile the world to himself and to make all things new and to reunite heaven and earth that have been torn asunder. That a cosmic invasion of earth from heaven is taking place and that we are supporting characters in that story, in Jesus's story, in God's story. How can we better grasp that significance, that the significance of that shift of perspective? I've already mentioned this uh, from the pulpit, I believe, but I uh, very much enjoy the book The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I was struck recently as I was talking to someone about how odd it is to read The Hobbit after you've read The Lord of the Rings. For those of you who are fans of The Hobbit, I'm not knocking it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great story in itself, but it's a little odd to read it in light of The Lord of the Rings. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with those books, let me uh, explain what I'm I'm getting at. The Hobbit uh, is a book that was written first, and it's mainly the story of the character Bilbo Baggins having an adventure. In the course of his adventure, he comes across a magic ring and he acquires it and he finds it can make him invisible. And in The Hobbit, the ring is very interesting, it's exciting, and it's a very helpful tool for Bilbo on his own adventure. But that's about it. But in The Lord of the Rings, we learn much more about that same ring. We discover that the magic ring was made by Sauron, a powerful and evil being. And Sauron has invested some of his power in that ring, and he wants it back. And Sauron is gathering an army around himself, and his goal is world domination. And the ring will complete his power and make it possible. And the forces of good need to unite across the world to fight Sauron. And key to victory over this evil force is a long and difficult quest to destroy the ring at Mount Doom, the only place where it can be destroyed. And that quest must be made by two fairly ordinary hobbits, Frodo, who received the ring from Bilbo, and Sam, a close friend of Frodo's. And once you've read The Lord of the Rings, it's odd to reread The Hobbit. Because the Ring takes such a relatively minor role. In The Lord of the Rings, it is at the center of a cosmic struggle. In The Hobbit, it's just a helpful tool, really. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam are taken up and absorbed into this larger cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil for the very future of the world itself. In The Hobbit, we read of one Hobbit's exciting journey where the Ring of Soren is really just a nifty magic device for Bilbo's adventure. The Hobbit focuses on the story of one individual And an object with great spiritual power plays a small supporting role. In the Lord of the Rings, we view the bigger story between good and evil for the future of the world, and it is the hobbits who play supporting roles in that larger battle. We often view our lives like the hobbit. And so the center of great cosmic power, Christ the Son of God, plays a supporting role in our story, in our adventure. Our text this morning the story of Jacob's dream, the words of Christ and nathaniel they all tell us that we need to think of our lives more like the Lord of the Rings. So that Christ does not play a supporting role in our story, but we play a supporting role in his story. Now, here's an important aspect of this that we need to know. The fact that we're taken up into God's story and that God's story is primary does not mean that our story is unimportant. In fact, the opposite of that is actually true. Our story is more important because it is not the most important story. Let me say that again. Our story is more important because it is not the most important story. The fact that Frodo and Sam's stories are taken up into a larger cosmic struggle does not make their story less important, but more. Let me put it this way. Frodo and Sam begin the story as fairly domestic hobbits who enjoy relaxing and sitting by the fire and things like that. Throughout the novel and their adventure they become very good at survival skills, at traveling long distances through hostile terrain on foot. But the Lord of the Rings is not primarily a story about two hobbits learning survival skills. There's something much more important going on. There's a cosmic battle occurring. Frodo and Sam's personal story of learning how to survive in hostile conditions are not the point. Yet that does not mean that their growth in those areas is unimportant it is actually in view of the larger cosmic story that their personal development becomes more important. Because if they fail to acquire these skills, there is an impact on the cosmic level. They affect the larger worldwide storyline. It is the larger storyline that makes Sam and Frodo's need to survive in a hostile environment so important. And so it is for us. When we think about our spiritual lives, we tend to think of them in terms of the story of our lives. Christ shows up as a supporting character, forgiving us, challenging us. But the story is still about us. It's a little like how the ring is treated in The Hobbit. It's a little like rewriting Lord of the Rings as a story about two hobbits learning how to survive in the wilderness. Thinking that way, it makes our spiritual lives isolated. And it cuts us off from the larger cosmic struggle, which we're meant to be a part of. When we see how we are supporting characters and what God is doing in the world, the weight of our responsibility begins to come home we see how important our spiritual lives actually are. Another comparison might be helpful. This might be hard to tell based on my trim figure, but I actually do not like to jog. In fact, I think jogging is terrible. I have friends who run long distances for fun and I I simply cannot understand that or them. I saw a meme on Facebook, a a little phrase with a picture that sums up how I feel about jogging. This is what it said. It said, if you want me to go running with you, I'm going to need some motivation, like a clown waving a bloody knife and chasing us. (laughs) And that's about how I feel about jogging. Now, Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that there are benefits to jogging and that maybe I should be someone who jogs. I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying that at a gut level, I have trouble finding the motivation. And even though I know that my attitude towards physical fitness is probably wrong, I also think, to some extent, it's a little bit understandable. It just doesn't seem urgent in my day-to-day life. But what if I was a soldier? Or what if I was a fireman? What if I was a soldier or a fireman who refused to jog because I didn't like it? Well, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Because as a soldier or as a fireman, my physical fitness is not ultimately about me. It's ultimately about other people. It's ultimately about serving a higher calling, a higher purpose. It is about my ability as a soldier to fight well and so help and protect my fellow soldiers. It's about my ability to defend my nation. As a fireman, it's about my ability to rescue and serve others. And so neglecting my physical fitness is a whole different thing with consequences that are much more severe. And the same thing is true with our spiritual lives. Where are you spiritually lazy? In what areas do you treat your spiritual life the way that I too often treat my physical life? In what areas do you act like your spiritual life is a story about you and not about your part in a larger story, in a cosmic story? Where are you spiritually lazy? Is it in your prayer life? You know you should pray more often and more deeply, but you don't. And somehow other things in life always seem to crowd it out. Is it in your study of the scriptures or your attendance at church? Maybe you find it difficult or unpleasant and so you don't do it. You you push it off. You mean to do it maybe, but you always end up neglecting it. Is it in reaching out to those in need, inviting others into your life and serving them, showing them the love of Christ? Is it an area of personal sin in your life? Maybe how you handle your finances? Or how you relate to others in your family. Or how you sin sexually. Some area where sin has settled into your life and you no longer challenge it. Now that list is enough to make any Christian feel guilty if we really think about it seriously. But my point is not guilt over our imperfections. We all sin, we all fall short of what God calls us to, and God offers us forgiveness. He spurns us towards repentance. My point this morning is about those areas where we are no longer trying. Where we've given up the fight. But we've become lazy. To put it another way, if we were soldiers, I would not be as focused this morning on our inability to run a marathon or complete an Ironman, but our failure to even go out and try to run, to try to improve. Because it's easy to grow lazy in these areas when it's just about us, when it's just about our story. But what we see in our text is that it is not. It's about much more. It's about God's story. We are not just individuals on our own spiritual journeys, but participants in the cosmic spiritual story of God. We are not just recreational campers in the wilderness. We are Frodo and Sam. We are not just individuals trying to get fit, but soldiers or firefighters whom others depend on. Our spouse, our children, our friends, our church. They all rely on us spiritually. We are all participants in the kingdom of God. We are supporting characters in God's story. Our lives may often feel mundane, like a soldier running another lap around part of his base or Frodo and Sam setting up another campsite after another day of trudging through the wilderness. But these mundane elements matter because they're contributions to God's story. Your prayer life, your church involvement, your love shown to others, your struggle with greed and your battle with lust all play a part in this larger story. We do not simply believe in a savior who's come to heal us, give us advice on life, and then send us off on our own personal journeys. We serve a king who has caught us up and enlisted us in his cosmic battle and his mission to bless all families of the earth. By him, heaven is connected to and invading the earth. We are drafted into his army to fight not for our own little fiefdom, but for his expanding kingdom. What kind of soldiers will we be? Change happens slowly. Growth happens slowly. It doesn't usually begin with going out and running 20 miles. Sometimes it just starts with putting on our sneakers and going out and getting started. In the same way, it doesn't usually begin with praying for two hours every morning. Sometimes it just starts with getting on our knees and praying a psalm or confessing a few obvious sins to our Heavenly Father and drawing close to Him. But we can gain motivation in those areas where we know that we are spiritually lazy by knowing that we do not pursue these goals merely for ourselves. We pursue them for something much larger, for our families and friends and church, for the kingdom of God, for the mission of the Messiah. We do it in order to play our role as supporting characters in Christ's story. Let us see our lives that way more and more. Let us live our lives that way more and more. For it is in Christ's story that our lives find their significance. Amen.